We asked, and boy, did you answer. Today, we're going to answer some listener questions. Here's what matters to you. Live from our respective coronavirus social distancing outposts, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we, the strategists at New York Life Investments, will share insights from the multi-asset solutions team, what we think matters as we manage investment solutions. That includes Mainstay's diversified portfolio series, including the Income Builder Fund, as well as bespoke solutions for our partners. By sharing these perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of June 7th, 2021. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's June. I know, I'm with you. But to heat up the podcast, just like the weather on the East Coast is hot, and to start up the summer, we're going to take some listener questions today. Ooh, at the end of every episode, we do say to reach out to us with your questions. And today, we're here to share what matters with you. We got some really thoughtful questions on social media. And to help us address those questions, we're going to bring a new contributor to the podcast from our multi-asset solutions team. Unbi Ko is a new analyst on our team, has been making waves with great research and client work. Unbi, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Lauren. We've got some tough questions today, so I hope you're ready. Ooh, I like a good tough question. All right, Unbi, the floor is yours. What matters most to our listeners? So this first one is for Lauren. You've said before that markets have mostly followed the early cycle recovery script. What happens next? Awesome. I love this question. We'll start with the broad macroeconomic perspective. And and look, I expect the economic recovery to continue. But I have to say, risks for investors are rising. There's all eyes on things like supply chain dynamics and taxes and inflation and peaking economic growth. Frankly, there's always risks to investing, but they can feel more pronounced as valuations move higher. And so I'd expect moving forward that a rising tide isn't going to raise all ships. So what can investors do about that? What's our our general perspective? First, focus on the fundamentals. Companies that can leverage macroeconomic tailwinds or those that have invested in digitization or improving their supply chains These are the types of companies that are going to be able to continue to outperform, even though valuations are already high. The second thing we'd say is don't discount the recovery, at least not yet. Cyclical asset classes, the ones that tend to outperform as the economy improves, those are still likely to be the the best ideas for moving forward. They're also best suited to combat inflationary pressures if those inflationary pressures do come to fruition. And we're also looking at new investment themes, some of the policy themes like infrastructure and environmental, social, and governance investing that can leverage, again, this reopening environment, this new policy regime. So lots of risks out there, but lots of opportunities as well. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren. Robert, how about you take this next one? I've heard that history is repeating itself with comparisons to 1929. Is that true? Are we about to experience a market crash? Well, historical analogs are much easier than the crystal ball that Lauren just had to use. So much appreciated for the easy question, NB. Markets today do look similar to 1929 in many ways. I think there's five ways. One, 
there's a large cohort of IPOs going on right now. The market is really hot if you're a private company looking to go public. That's also because of two, there's quite a bit of speculation out there, meaning that investors are speculating that asset prices will move higher. There's also just a lot of leverage, both at the corporate level and at the government level. And that's supported by four Fed activity and possible inflation on the back end of monetary stimulus and low interest rates. And five, and perhaps most importantly, are valuation levels, meaning that investors are willing to pay quite a high price for assets currently. Still, though, I think even though you can make those comparisons, there's a lot of ways that it falls short. And myself and our team are always very skeptical of anyone who's trying to call or time a market bubble. It's an arduous task, and you're most likely to be on the wrong end of that call. There's nothing enormously sinister right now going on on our market indicators list looking across the board. And I think it's better that investors follow an economic or corporate cycle, meaning that profits are still in an uptrend. And there's nothing that looks like it's going to, you know, really mitigate that exposure to rising corporate profits. So the bottom line is investors might have to be more selective with the companies they're getting exposure to, identifying businesses that are improving at the individual level or leveraging that economic reopening that Lauren was talking about. Hmm, interesting. So Robert, as a related question, it seems that as stock prices move higher, more news articles say that investors have higher risks. What does that mean? How do you know if a stock is overvalued? People say that higher prices create higher risks because at least historically, when prices are high, it makes it harder for prices to move even higher. Kind of makes sense. By many indicators, US stocks are offering the worst expected returns ever after you adjust for the accelerating inflation. I'm specifically referring to April's inflation print. Even compared to bonds though, so bonds also are offering a pretty low interest rate right now. And even when you compare stocks to bonds, it doesn't look very attractive. The earnings yield gap, which is a measure that we use for long-term valuations, it's the amount of profit generated per dollar of stock market value. And then you subtract away the yield on bonds. That level is a common way to assess the decision between choosing a stock or a bond. And right now, that earnings yield gap is pretty low. It's about as low as it's been since the global financial crisis. Now, it can fluctuate over time, and our economist Paul Christensen is quick to point out this valuation gap at times has been more extreme, like back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And stock prices were still increasing significantly from there. And so the bottom line is that buyers should beware that there just aren't that many op- uh, discounts available in the market today. Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, determining whether a stock is overvalued, there's some science to it, but some art as well. It can be subjective and up to, you know, there's lots of different indicators you could look at. And depending on which ones you choose, you might get a different story. Having high valuations or potentially overvalued stocks or bonds in different areas, that doesn't necessarily mean no opportunity for investors. There's other factors that could make stocks a good investment, particularly if you're considering your long-term financial goals. But just generally speaking, high valuations mean outperformance is going to be harder moving forward. So investors have to be mindful of their approach. So rather than investing in full indices or sectors or styles, for example, maybe investors are going to have to identify the individual companies or strategies that have solid footing for the coming months. So related to valuations, we actually received a lot of questions about cryptocurrency. 
However, I know you're working on an episode on crypto for next week. So we'll leave that out for now. Oh, that's going to be a really good episode. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Moving on then, Lauren, one of the other most common concerns among these questions was about the debt. After so much government spending, the deficit is rising quickly. Is this a market risk? Oh, yes. This is a really common question from investors, really all kinds of investors in our group. And so I'm glad you asked it. The fiscal outlook not just COVID relief, but also infrastructure and some of the spending that's being proposed moving forward, that means that significant investment and spending is being pulled forward, in part funded by deficits. Now, based on estimates from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, because the American Jobs Act pairs some temporary spending measures with what are supposed to be permanent offsets, that plan would increase debt to GDP in the next 10 years, but actually decrease it in the 10 years after that. I also anticipate that less spending will get passed than what is being proposed right now, but there's no way around it. Current debt levels are about as high as they were after World War II, and it looks like they're going up. So is that a market risk? The main path for debt to become a market risk for investors is for investors to lose faith that the U.S. is able or willing to pay back that debt over time. For now, that's not a risk. In terms of ability to pay back the debt, record low interest rates keep the cost of debt service low. And even though, of course, we do see some pressure on interest rates in the last couple of months, we're still seeing the overall level of interest rates being uh, fairly low and the Fed's policy designed to keep those interest rates low for the foreseeable future. Now, when it comes to the willingness of the U.S. government to pay back its debt, this is where tax increases play a really important role. Putting aside whether tax increases are good or bad, the occasional willingness to raise taxes to fund spending is a textbook example of what we call fiscal discipline. So for now, that ability and willingness to pay back the debt still look intact. The U.S. government or U.S. government debt is really considered a safe haven for when things go wrong. And that dynamic would have to reverse for debt to be a concern. So we're always on the lookout, but it's not something that we're positioning our portfolios for at the moment. All right. Now I'm going to respond to your very thorough answer with a very simple question. What about corporate debt? Ooh, yes. Okay. Now, this is something investors can position for and one of the more interesting stories of the pandemic. So corporate companies issued record debt in 2020 and issuance has remained strong this year. And this has raised questions about whether we now have a new corporate debt problem on our hands. On the aggregate level, thinking in terms of structural economic risks, the answer is no. Companies raised cash last year to, first of all, take advantage of the record low interest rates I was just talking about. And then also, second, to build cash balances to help get them through the pandemic. So in many cases, that's actually a really good use of capital structure. But the question now is, what will companies do with their cash now that the key pandemic threat has passed? Will they pay back the debt? Will they invest in new operations or ideas? Will they instead buy back shares or issue dividends, which would be good for equity investors, but not so good for debt investors? Each of these things creates a risk for some investors and opportunities for others. So the key is for investors to work with active managers in fixed income who can identify the opportunities and the risks among all that issuance. Some great things to think about. Here's another one for Robert. I've heard the media talk about impact investing. What is it? Is it the same thing as ESG investing? I'm glad this came up. It's a good question. And I'm certainly not surprised to hear that our investors are asking about how they can have an impact, a positive impact on the world. 
Impact investing are targeted investments that are aimed at solving a problem. These are problems that are facing society or uh, the world at large. ESG investing is using factors to analyze material risks to a company's business model. For example, how a company conducts itself, their operational strategy to engage with society and the environment. So there's a subtle difference there. I think, well, nobody asked me, but I'll give my opinion on how you can go about making an impact investment. There's really three things to focus on. The first is to identify your intention. Impact investing is motivated by the intention to create a social or environmental impact. What are you, the investor, choosing to invest in and why? Second, investors need to do their due diligence. There's a lot of funds out there, a lot of investment opportunities that might say they have impact or say they use ESG investing, but it's a pretty nascent industry and investment type. So investors really have to be cognizant that they're finding a fund that is accessible and trustworthy. Is there a real increase in the environmental or social value that would not have occurred in the absence of that investment being made or that item or action being taken? It's really important to do your due diligence. And then third, investors are going to want to size this position accordingly to their overall strategic goals and make sure that they're measuring their impact down the road, which is easier said than done. So in your portfolio, make sure you understand how the exposure to this fund or investment strategy meets or enhances your overall goals. And if it creates any biases in your portfolio, like is it too regionally specific or does it change the types of sectors you're investing in? And then investors need to follow up on those outcomes, including both the financial return and the social return of the impacts that are being measured. And that should be measured on an ongoing basis and the fund should be assessed on an ongoing basis. All right, since you bring up investment tactics, I'd like to transition us to the portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. Probably half of the questions we received were related in some way to inflation. Reports of supply chain bottlenecks, higher prices, and difficulty finding workers have become more prominent in the last month. You both have spoken about inflation in various forms in the past several weeks. The team's view is that supply-demand imbalances are natural in the early stages of the economic cycle and are likely to pass over the next year or so. Still, in the course of that year, the Fed will start to reduce policy accommodation and inflation will still be impacting businesses and investments. How can an investor prepare for rising prices? Oh, this is such a good portfolio pause question. I really like it. But first of all, and Robert, I'll give you the the first shot at answering this one. But before we do, just a quick plug for our last episode in which we talked all things inflation with Steve Friedman from Mackay Shields. It's a really good one. So go check that out. Very good one. Steve is a very smart investor and economist. There are lots of ways that an investor can prepare for an inflationary environment. I'll try to be concise with my answer. And I think what we can bucket it out between you and me, Lauren, I I assume there's probably three buckets coming. (laughs) Uh, The first bucket might be to think about the ways to cushion a portfolio against inflation. Inflation typically means that interest rates are going to rise to fight inflation. Investors can cushion the impact of higher rates by going short duration. A shorter maturity bond is less sensitive to rising interest rates and tips are financial instruments that factor in changes to inflation. 
some investors can use a portion of their fixed income sleeve as well to invest in gold. And gold has many of the same correlation benefits to stocks as bonds do. But instead of carrying an income, gold tends to increase in value as the purchasing power of the dollar declines. So all three of these investments, shorter maturity bonds, tips, and gold come with their own specific risks. They can be overvalued or undervalued at any given time, but they can also cushion in a portfolio against rising inflation. Those are some really great examples of the cushion. And uh, for our investors who might be new to fixed income investing, tips are treasury inflation protected securities, which as Robert mentioned, factor in inflation, as is in the title. All right. If the gauntlet is thrown to me then for bucket two, you talked about cushioning. I'll talk about leveraging, like really using the inflationary environment. So investors can essentially consider rotating into the asset classes that tend to benefit from rising inflationary, rising interest rate environment. So cyclical and value equities in sectors such as materials and energy and financials have historically outperformed as economic growth and inflation were rising. And early in this cycle, that has been the case um, in many moments as well. In fixed income, on the other hand, Robert mentioned shorter duration, high yield bonds, floating rate loans also tend to benefit from rising rates or a steeper curve. And then we have real assets such as real estate, infrastructure, commodities, those things you can like put your hands on different from financial assets like a stock or bond. Those can also contribute during an inflationary environment. Wow, those are good examples of ways investors can leverage the expansionary or inflationary economic environment. One last thing to consider, and I told you there were going to be three things, (laughs) uh, is that valuations are already high. An inflationary environment in that case may end up feeling a bit like general volatility to investors, sideways, without a clear direction for the market. As a result, investors could considering building carry into their portfolio, which is another way of saying building income. We like to use fixed income securities and equity income to build income into our portfolios. And we rely on global allocation to build diversification and more income opportunities. Amazing. Well, that concludes the grilling from me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you both for your answers and thank you to our listeners for your questions. Thanks, Unbi. Isn't she great? Our team is great. All right. Well, coming up next, inflation data is out on Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's out this week, and it's going to be top of mind for investors, just like the jobs report was last week, because investors are trying to determine essentially the path of the Fed. You know, we see these price pressures, these supply chain bottlenecks. Is the Fed going to reduce its paces of accommodation? Is it not? What is it going to look like? Now, I think the path forward for the Fed is pretty clear from here, barring any really wild moves that we're not expecting. I do expect price pressures to be higher in the data this week, but for the Fed to be consistent in saying that it will only remove its pace of accommodation later this year or early next year, but it'll start talking about that sooner. That said, as it came up in our questions today, higher inflation does still impact companies bottom lines. So while we might not see a huge impact in the Fed's trajectory, inflation still is really important for how we invest. And again, working with good managers to assess which companies are able to pass prices on to consumers who have pricing power can protect their margins will be really important moving forward. And we will get that important data point on Thursday, LG. 
Negotiations in Washington appear to be at a standstill. We've been closely watching the infrastructure negotiations. Instead of being bipartisan, it just likely means that we're probably going to see something pass later this year through the budget reconciliation process. As a result, corporate taxes remain top of mind for investors as well as inflation. Last week, the Biden administration proposed a 15% minimum book tax. And then over the weekend, in the international economic community, there was some agreed to as a, as a standard 15% tax internationally so that corporations can't move to specific countries for more easy tax policy. Look, at the end of the day, the details on what the new U.S. tax line items will be is still up for debate. But one thing is clear, corporate taxes are likely to increase. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. Let us know what matters to you. If you have a question or a topic of interest, reach out to us on social media. We really, really do listen and read those. We do. And as you can see, some of these questions are good ones and really tough. So please send us your questions and highlight what matters to you by finding us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views on our website, which is newyorklifeinvestments.com and click on the insights tab. Until then, I'm Robert Zarenbetz. And I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. podcast is produced by Milo Benamont, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I'll now read our disclosures from compliance. For more information about Mainstay Funds, call 1-800-624-6782 for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Investors are asked to consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the investment carefully before investing. The prospectus or summary prospectus contains this and other information about the investment company. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Impact investing and or environmental, social, and governance for ESG managers may take into consideration factors beyond traditional financial information to select securities, which could result in relative investment performance deviating from other strategies or broad market benchmarks, depending on whether such sectors or investments are in or out of favor of the markets. Further, ESG strategies may rely on certain values-based criteria to eliminate exposures found in similar strategies or broad market benchmarks, which could also result in relative investment performance deviating. There's no assurance that the investment objectives will be met. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as of a specific date. It is subject to change and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is a service mark and name under which New York Life Investment Management LLC does business. New York Life Investments is an indirect subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company, New York, New York 10010, and provides investment advisory services and products. New York Life Distributors LLC is located at 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302. New York Life Distributors LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.